So I, um, I came home last Monday with a new stool. I was very proud of it. It weighs about 78 pounds. Um, some of you know I've been, I've been sitting in the same corner on the same stool at the same Starbucks for about 10 years now. And they're doing a remodel. So I went in the last day before the remodel, and I'd been sitting there, and one of the baristas came up to me and said, hey, Dean, we're going to let you take your stool home with you. (laughs) Got a little tear in my eyes. You're giving me my stool? She said, yeah. I just called so-and-so. They said you could have your stool. My stool. And then I said, isn't it going to look kind of weird if a customer's walking out with furniture? And one of the young men's like, hey, Mr. Dean, you can always tell a church kid they put Mr. in front of your name. Hey, Mr. Dean, I'll carry that out to your car for you. Just tell me when you're leaving. So I got up, picked up my stuff. He came around. He picked up the stool, and he followed me out to my car. Put it in the back seat, and I walked in like, Kelly, they gave me my stool. So um, <laughs> I thought I would preach from my... Starbucks stool. I've spent many years wearing the paint off of this thing, so uh, <laughs> so um, I'm also seated because these last two chapters of Revelation, they're the kind of chapters that kind of make you want to start walking around. You know what I mean? It just kind of gets you excited, and poor Dan does not need to try to chase me around with a camera. And the people are online. Oh, where'd he go? Oh, there he is. There he is now. So um, it's probably best that I stay <laughs> seated for the next few weeks. Um, these are such good chapters. We've been in Revelation since, goodness, the beginning of the year, I guess. And we come to a close, and we're coming to the last two chapters, and I thought, <coughs> excuse me, a chapter a week. I couldn't get through chapter 21, so two weeks for chapter 21. Possibly two weeks for chapter 22. Um, but this stool, um, I have a friend, Alan Bryant, I don't know if you've met him, but um, he... Um, he comes here sometimes. He, um, he, he reminds me, and I've, you've heard me say this a million times, um, we, we tell stories to make sense of life, right? We tell ourselves stories. Um, other people tell us stories. Um, we tell ourselves stories to make sense of life. Um, difficult things happen. We, we tell stories. Um, stories about our past, stories about our present, and we even try to tell stories about our future, um, all to try to maybe um, try to connect the parts and the pieces of our life, try to, to see if there's maybe a plot <laughs> uh, to this thing called life, maybe a theme. Uh, we tell stories, we ask questions to other people and see if they will tell us stories to see maybe how God has been at work in their life or to see how God might be at work in their life. And so um, this stool has been listening to stories for about 10 years and I'm trying to help people make sense of life and maybe trying to get their next chapter in a Godward direction. And in the process, mine, I've been telling stories and maybe my life has made a tad bit more sense uh, for those stories, but um, what if you could know the last chapter? 
What if you could know how it all ends? Not like, well, it might end this way, but it's going to end this way. Um, I go back and forth between like, okay, yeah, that would be cool, to, yeah, that would make a big difference. Because some people say, well, if the ending is already set, then what difference does it make? Whatever will be, will be, right? Um, but some people say, well, if the ending is set, oh, wow, then I can just take all sort of risk. And, and, uh, that, I know where my story's headed, so maybe that works with some of the questions I have now. And even, if, even when I say that, um, there's still two. This isn't one of those, you remember those things when you were a kid, like write your own story? Like if you want to do this, turn to page 20, but if you want to do this, turn to page 40. It's, it's not like that. You don't get to Revelation 20 and say, okay, if you want Jesus to win, turn to page 960. No, it doesn't work like that. But there, there are still, even at this point, two groups of people. Um, so there is a little bit of decision that comes into play. But this last chapter is characterized by a very exciting word. And I think it's a very hopeful, hopeful word. Um, it's the word new. And that word new should lend itself a sense of hope. Um, all things new. Um, Today, we're going to look at this. Like, even if all things are new, what will all things new be? Uh, what things will be missing when all things are new? Um, if you're in a chapter this morning where your story seems stuck, like, I've been in this chapter forever, struggling with the same stuff. Ah, can we please turn the page? Maybe this idea of newness is exactly what you, you need. Um, maybe looking back at certain chapters and, and wonder if, was God even there? Can he redeem those chapters? So the next few weeks, we're going to look at how the story ends. Not just a Bible story, but the story. Now, just to recap real quick, chapter 20, that chapter filled with questions. Um, remember, it all started with... Um, we threw the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, the Satan. We got all of his names in chapter 20. Threw him in the pit for a thousand years. And uh, this thousand years happened and it said, I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image had not received his mark on their foreheads and their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So Christ is here and his people are here and it's a thousand years. And Revelation 20 um, just says the rest will not come to life till later. Blessed are you if you get to be there. And then verse 7 says, and when the thousand years are ended. So if you were hoping for like 30 verses saying, oh, and let me tell you what this thousand years is going to be like. Unfortunately, uh, John just didn't give us that. 
but we see that the thousand years were ended. Satan came out. We won't go through all of chapter 20 again, but it ended with um, this big war. Satan's defeated again. Death in Hades, thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. Anyone's name not written in the book of life, thrown in as well. So, ta-da! You would think Revelation could end there. Right? That wouldn't be a bad place to say, and they all lived happily ever after. But wait, there's more. So we come to chapter 21. Um, wonderful, wonderful chapter. And it starts with new things. The first verse, the Lord Jesus us. Then I saw. Now remember, we've had these visions. We've seen these words, then I saw, then I saw, then I saw. So here's, here we are. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now remember, John is in the spirit and he's, he's being given a vision. And in this vision, he sees heaven and earth have been made new. And there's no more sea. Now, remember, we're not here to answer every question because that would just take forever but I was thinking about this, and I was like, you know, it's much easier for me to pre- imagine a new earth than it is a new sky. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I guess if he can create the earth, he can create a new sky. And maybe he's going to have to, because if there's no sea in that place, an important part in the ecosystem, maybe we're going to get some new important thing, how that's going to work. Um, we talk about evil things come out of the sea, but right, everything in the sea in chapter 5 gave glory and honor to the lamb who sits on the throne. But then in chapter 13, the beast comes out of the sea. Three quarters of the earth's surface is sea. What do you do without that? It's not that it's like there's not going to be any water. We get that in chapter 22. Lots of water. Um, but it's a new heaven and a new earth. So when we get there, we can look at each other and go, <laughs> That's how he did it. Um, But how do you make a new heaven and a new earth? Like, what's he going to do with the old one? (laughs) What about the people that were on it? I mean, is this like a replacement planet? But this, we we saw this last week, Um, Isaiah especially, this is, this was the prophecy all along, Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Second Peter 3, according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and new earth. And even in chapter 20, it says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, the earth and sky fled away. So apparently he's even starting it there. So the hope of the prophets seems to have been that this earth and these heavens We're going to get new ones, like this global rehab. Um, Even in Romans 8, a wonderful, wonderful chapter, where it says, The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the liberty of the glory of the children of God. So, if the people are going to be made new, God's going to give them a new place to live. A, A glorious new creation to live in. So even fallen creation will go, ah, yes, we've been waiting for this. It'll be made new. And then 
verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. See, Paula, I told you I was just going to talk about you today. Yeah, um, <laughs> a new, so this is the third new, a new Jerusalem out of heaven from God. So God sends a city from above down. We spend all day talking about this, but imagine if the world's most important dignitary came to spring, right? Um, what would we do? Like, everything would be mowed to perfection. No garbage in the ditches, right? All the trees would be trimmed. No dead trees would be showing. Like, everything would look just perfect. So imagine a city, it says, out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Imagine a city prepared for the most important dignitary. Everything's spotless, brand new. Imagine, ladies, everything you did to prepare for your wedding. Like two right here. <laughs> Recent. Um, like you didn't just roll out of bed and go, yeah, I look fine. I mean, he's already set. I mean, the day is set. What's he going to do? <laughs> I'm not even going to brush my teeth. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what you do. You spend hours getting everything right. And, I mean, it's cool that everybody else in the room is looking at you and thinks you look good, but you're coming down the aisle and it's that man up there that you're like, you want him to think you look good, right? And so this coming down out of heaven from God prepares a bride adorned for her husband. So this beautiful, beautiful city, fit for Jesus himself, right? Again, Isaiah, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. It's picturing a day. No more will the unclean come into you. Even the book of Hebrews says, we're preparing for that day. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. I don't picture this being a quiet affair. Like the city's coming down. It's just like, you can hear a pin drop. It's like, no. Hallelujah, right? So, new heaven, new earth. The city's coming down. And then verse three, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them in, as their God. Sorry. My right hearing aid is making a weird noise. It's going in my hearing aids. What's wrong with him? Yeah, sorry. Anyway, okay. Um, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So there is in the Bible this idea that God will dwell with his people but that it's, but that it's ridiculous to think that God could dwell with his people. These two ideas come together all throughout the Bible, right? It's the heavens can't contain God but we're gonna build this building and he's gonna live there. That's just crazy right? Exodus 25, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell there with them. God said to do that. Make me a house. I'll come live with you. 
Leviticus 26, I will make my dwelling among you. I will walk among you and be your God and you'll be my people because I brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you'd no longer be slaves. But then when they finally get out of this tent and they come into the temple and Solomon's there dedicating this temple, he asks the question that all of us want to ask, but will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I built? So it's like God says, build this building, I'll come dwell there. And Solomon's like, God, you can't fit in a building. So now we've got this loud voice. The dwelling place of God is with man. Even Paul in Athens says to these philosophers, God does not live in a temple built by human hands. But yet here is this city that's just going to be full of God. What's it going to be like to live in a city with the Trinity? Right? I, there was, when I was in seminary, there was this uh, famous theologian. Well, he was famous in theological circles. He had just written this great big systematic theology. And he had come to campus, and he had spoken in chapel, and he, um, he was speaking at a theology class. And I went and sat in the back row and just listened. And he was talking about the Trinity. And... Um, Somebody raised their hand during Q&A time and said, so when we get to heaven, what will we see when we see the Trinity? And this old theologian who just wrote a book this big on theology went, I really don't know. (laughs) I love that really, really smart people can say, I really don't know. Like when we sing, I was thinking while we were singing God Moves in a Mysterious Way, it's like there's a point like when you're brand new and when everything is mysterious and then you like go for a long, long time walking with Jesus and doing all this, reading the Bible and then you come out the other side and you're mature enough to say, yeah, some things are mysterious, but you're mature enough to say it then, right? But I was just, man, like the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is pneuma. The Greek word pneuma means breath or wind. Like, in the holy city or on the new earth, like, when a breeze blows, will that be the Spirit? Like, will the presence of the Father, like described in chapter 4, and we sing about when we sing the Revelation song, like these golden rainbows of living colors and lightning, like, oh, that's the Father. He just permeates every corner of the city. Like, the unmistakable presence of God with his people. And here's the amazing part. There will be nothing in us to resist that. There will be nothing in us to say, whoa, back off, God. You're you're cramping me a bit here. No, we will just love the presence of God. And then verse 4. Oh, here's a doozy. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And he makes a list of no mores. You ready? And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, M-O-U-R, nor crying, nor pain, anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 7, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The last enemy destroyed death. 
Another prophecy from Isaiah. Rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. I will rejoice. God says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. He will swallow up death for all time. The Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people. 1 Corinthians 15, when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, death is its lot of victory. Imagine a place where no one dies. Imagine a place where, like, you bend over to tie your shoes and it doesn't hurt. (laughs) You don't bend over to pick something up and go, when you get back up. Okay, I guess I'm the only one that does that. Okay, never mind. Um, (laughs) No physical pain, no emotional pain, psychological pain, whatever. No more, like he says, I'll wipe away every tear. Imagine the finger of God wiping a tear off your face. And I don't know what that means. I, like, how does that work with memory? We sang that in the song. Either they just get erased or our memories will be so thoroughly redeemed to see the wisdom and goodness of God in them. Like, I don't know how you feel about yourself, but I'm kind of sick of me. Like, I just get tired of myself sometimes. But... I won't even grieve over me anymore. Like, that part of me that the New Testament says I need to keep dying to myself, that part that I need to die to, I won't have to, it won't be there for me to die to anymore. What a relief. A world with nothing to mourn, nothing to grieve. No one you love will ever be lost. God himself, he says, I, did you notice how, how particular? He will wipe away every tear. God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away the tears. We'll come back to that line in a second. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So when John saw this, he was speaking it in present tense. I am making. So he's watching this happen. And and he says, I love this line. He said this many times. It just strikes me. Write this down. Hey, John, write this down. People in Texas are going to want to know about this. (laughs) These words are trustworthy and true. I'm making all things new. He said it is to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It's done. It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter of the alphabet, the last letter of the alphabet. From everlasting to everlasting, I'm God. Go back to the beginning and then go back to whatever it is before the beginning. We don't have words from that. Just call it eternity, forever, ever, ever. Back that way and then go up to eternity, forever, ever that way. And that's God's there, right? Every small G God that any human being ever made up, there was a moment when they made it up. God wasn't made up. He has no beginning. And he said this, oddly enough, at the beginning of the book, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. 
He says, and I will give the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. We're going to get back to the river of life back in chapter 22, but this is just incredible. Free of charge. Jesus who says, I am the water of life. You're thirsty. I think this is amazing. Remember several weeks ago when we looked at a satellite image of Africa in the Middle East and there was this like, this huge swath of planet Earth that's just brown, like all of North Africa in the Middle East is just brown. Right, imagine if you live there all your life and you just kind of wake up every day and you wonder about water. All right? And then imagine Isaiah saying, the poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues are perched with thirst. I will answer them. I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants. Or think about that woman like that Samaritan woman at the well, and Jesus points out, yeah, you've got this thirst, but you've been trying to satisfy that thirst all the wrong ways. If you knew the gift of God, who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask me and I would have given you living water. Just coming right from Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without cost. With no charge, he says, in this new heaven and new earth, whatever this thirst is, it's going to be satisfied. From the spring of the water of life. Without payment, you won't walk, however this works, it won't be like swipe your debit card, won't be any of that. And back again, he kind of repeats verse 7, to the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. So this is kind of, you go back up, and only this is very, very personal. This is singular, but he said back up, I will be their God and they will be my people. So he's talking possessive of a group, and now he's coming very particular to a person. But this is, like, if you go back to the Old Testament, every nation, every country had their own gods, right? And they had, like, little things they managed. But when did the gods ever return the favor and say, oh, you've got me? Cool, I've got you too. <laughs> it never worked that way. But God says, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. He makes it so personal. God says, you're my own. He returns it. Ah, uh, Verse 8. Did anybody see verse 8 coming? Okay. So, what is not in the new heaven and new earth? Um, tears, death, mourning, crying, pain, all that's passed away. But what else is not there? Verse 8, cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Um, wow. That's an uncomfortable list. Like, can we pare it down to like murderers and sorcerers? Yeah. Um, what's going on here? Like, did we forget about grace? Did we forget about water free of charge? Well, 
this is another sermon, but, but I would say this. It's not that, it's not that people are going to be there because they managed to quit one of these. Okay, you, you were a murderer. You stopped murdering people. Come on in, right? And nor is it everybody who ever murdered or committed an act of immorality or was ever an act of idolatry, you're not in. Um, but this is basically a list of the works of the flesh from Galatians 5. The works of the flesh are evidence. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, things like these. Don't inherit the kingdom of God with these. There is in this, maybe you would say the works of the flesh have taken on an identity in a person's life. And I just... Even in Romans 1, where it says, they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God and God delivered them over to their corrupt mind to do what is not right. And then it goes through a long list like this. Um, there, there is something in us that almost immediate, is immediately repelled by this because we know somebody. Right? Well, I know a guy that's lived like this for 50 years, but I saw him the day he walked down the aisle and prayed a prayer when he was 10. I mean, he's been a drunken, cowardly liar for 75 years, right? And it's very interesting that this, it's, we, we want so badly to have assurance for other people, right? It's like... But, but there's somebody I love. There's somebody I'm kin to. There's a friend. And they seem to be absolutely faithless. And they seem to have an identity of an, of an idolater. Right? And he says, this is their portion, their place. At the very least, it wakes us up to the seriousness of, of seriousness of not just sin, but of taking this into ourselves. And it also wakes us up to not being so quick to say, oh yeah, that we'll see that awful person there. Not because they're an awful person, it's by grace through faith, right? But do you see what I'm saying here? Um, like what's the identity of this person? Not did they ever lie in their lives, right? I, I, I want to connect the, the life, the river of life, excuse me, the, the water of life for free in this. There's, there's this passage, and we'll go on. Um, this passage in Jeremiah 2, where God brings charges against his people. He says that, I bring charges against you. And he, and he says, I want you to go around to every, go over to the coast of that country and go over to this country and I want you to look closely at every country and see if you've ever seen anything like what I'm seeing. And he asks this, has a nation ever changed its gods? Not that they're gods at all, but... And then he says, my people have. They exchanged their glorious gods for worthless idols. And he said, and let the heavens be appalled and shudder with great horror. And then he says this, my people have committed two sins. What are the two sins? They have forsaken me, sin one. They forsook a spring of living water. And 
Number two, they dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So what's the picture here? There's a guy who has this wonderful bubbling spring of cold, refreshing water. And rather than drinking it, he goes over here, he takes a rock, he takes a chisel and hammer, and he hews out of it like a giant watering trough, and he waits for it to rain, and there's just this nasty water with mosquitoes and tadpoles and leaves and gunk floating in it, and he's just drinking out of it. You know, he's getting dysentery, and he's just, blah, he's getting sick, and his neighbors are like, dude, you've got a spring 10 feet away, what are you doing? And God says, that's what my people did. They had living water, and they went after other gods. They took on their, they wrapped themselves up in this, and I think that's what these these people are here. I don't want living water. I want this list. They spent a lifetime telling God to leave them alone, and then they get it, right? So chapter 9, we get, excuse me, verse 9 of chapter 21. We'll see this next week. We're going to measure the city for those of you who love engineering. We get to, we're going to get a tape measure out. We're not going to do that today, but... Um, let me just put a couple of things maybe in perspective here um, before we go. You know, Paul says, this beautiful verse, 1 Corinthians, um, our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. And I know that right now, verse 4 describes our lives because we have death and we have tears and we have mourning and we have crying and we have pain. That's life. That's life. And sometimes it does not feel momentary. It feels like it just is never ending. But he says you can fix your eyes on what is not yet seen, but he gives us a picture, right? to the day when God himself will wipe away the tear. And um, as J.R. Tolkien said, all the sadness will come untrue. <laughs> and all the sad things will come untrue. But let me, let me take the next step after that and just say this. God can do something. God will do something new which means God can do something new. I don't, I don't think God is up there just kind of sitting around with a calendar marking down the days, and, and somewhere off in the future, he's got this date where it says, do something new. And he's going, Whew, I can't wait. I'm tired of doing old stuff. Um, right? Because sometimes you feel stuck, and you're just like, boy, wouldn't I love something new? You know, and we, we know St. Corinthians 5.17. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come, right? So if you come to Christ by faith, he will make you new. So we know he can do that. But is that the end of the newness in your life, right? Um, let, me just, let me just give you just a word for that sense of stuckness. Let me go back through this passage and, sh and show you something. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. He will dwell with them. He himself will be with them. I am making all things new. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I will give the spring of the water of life. I will be his God. 
like, it wasn't as if at the end of chapter 20, all the people got together and prayed and started working really hard and started rearranging earth. You know what would look good? Some new trees. Let's reroute this river. Um, Let's fill up the seas. It wasn't, the new heaven and new earth is not the result of people working hard and rearranging new heaven and new earth. Everything that happens in chapter 21 this morning happens from outside the system, if you will, from God. It comes from outside ourselves. And in a world that's telling you, oh, it's all about your desires and be yourself and be who this, 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 and this. He's saying, well, if you want new, that's coming from outside of you. He makes all things new. I read this before we started today. The wellspring of life is with you. Your light, we see light. I'll read a quote. We'll finish with these two. Um, That one little word, new, is a life raft on ships sinking in despair. It's a shaft of life into a dark room. It is a key that will open a locked door, the pick that will release handcuffs. It is the welcome sound of an elevator repairman arriving to save me and my friends. It contains a world of fresh possibility and eternal hope. New demonstrates that the future of the universe isn't limited by its present reality or its present resources or lack thereof. Do you see that? The future of this universe is not limited by its present reality or its lack of resources. That is true of your life. Your next day is not limited by who you, what you got, right? What you have, your present resources, your present reality, because he is the one who makes things new. And it comes from him who makes all things new. He goes on to say this. This shows, the world's, the word new shows that he is still in the business, not just of moving old things around, but of making new things. It shows that the law of entropy, the processes of decay, and the laws of nature will not get the final word. I love that. Because there will be at last an infusion of fresh, creative, renewing divine power into all we know. This means that the word new opens up genuine present possibilities for us. I hope you feel the possibility in that. Like if you feel like you've just been kind of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic in your life, there are resources outside of you where new can come in. Let me just give one last point here. Um, Because I know it's so easy to say, yeah, but that's then. Um, Let me give you one more picture from one of my favorite pastors and he gets this from Colossians 1, 4, and 5. Listen, listen carefully to this verse. We have heard of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, did you hear the word because? Why did the church in Colossae love the saints so much? Because their hope was in heaven. Their hope was this. And therefore, they were free to love people. And this is a picture one of my favorites gave. He says, if somebody falls out of an airplane with no parachute and you don't have a parachute either, you're not going to jump out after them. It won't do any good. Two deaths are not better than one. But if you have a parachute on, you just might try one of those awesome rescue attempts, free fall like a bullet, 
and catch that helpless person and then pull your cord. It is the hope of safety in the end that releases radical, sacrificial love now. You got a parachute. Jump out of the plane, right? I'm I'm thinking of this conversation. Um, I have a friend who has always been a little bit of a radical, risk-taking person who has lived almost all of his adult life in a place where he could just die for his, what he does. And I asked him one time, do you think much about heaven? And I was a bit shocked at what he said. He said, you know, I became a Christian when I was a teenager and I immediately started thinking about heaven. 16 years old, and he immediately knew that heaven was better. And guess what? He goes to the hardest places in the world. There's a connection. There's a connection, right? So you jump out of the plane because you got a parachute. (laughs) Let me pray for us today. God, thank you for Revelation 21. My goodness, this is good stuff. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for every story in this room. (laughs) Thank you for every chapter of every story. Some of the chapters are horrendous, horrendous with difficulty and pain and suffering, maybe even abuse at the hands of evil people. But your promise is that, that, that the pain will be no more someday and you will wipe away the tears. And so God, for the, the people in this room that have chapters in their life that just seem to flavor every other chapter with a, with a sense of darkness and dread, and hopelessness, God. I pray that they've been able to see today that you're, you're the one who makes things new. And I pray, God, that, that today would be a day when um, they would just sense that you're doing something new in their lives, not just rearranging old stuff, but, but doing something new, whatever that might be. God, I pray that there would be in, in Creekside Bible Church a, a new sense of hopefulness, I don't know how to put that, God. Just a new sense of hopefulness that if there are risks to be taken for the kingdom, and we know there are, that you're the one who makes all things new. Dear God, I pray that you would also to help us to see the seriousness of the rescue mission here, Lord, because there's people that won't be there. And maybe we be um, a risk-taking people. Parachute on. Lord, we thank you for the freeness of the water of life. We thank you for the goodness of our shepherd. Lord, may we leave a hopeful, courageous people today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.